Would you take your scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, we'll be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 37. Acts 4, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And it came to pass, as the next day, on the next day, that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And but when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has made, been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were educated and untrained, were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man that had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no one in this name. So they called to them, and commanded them to speak, not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding a way, no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what he had done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, 
were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. For when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed were his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Josie, who was also named Barnabas. Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having laid having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we come this morning to your word. We come because of a great desire to know you in a way that will build us up in our faith and hope. We come to learn more about your son and the one you sent to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Your word tells us this son is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at your right hand because you are the majesty in heaven. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your wisdom as it is given us from your word in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our series on godly character. This morning, we're looking at generosity. To be generous is to freely give from the heart to a worthy cause. We begin this morning with Acts 4, verses 32 through 37. In this passage we just read, you can see that the Christians of this first century church were generous in their giving. Luke points out in Acts 4.32 very clearly that those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Indeed, this is an extraordinary thing. These people were under great pressure. The Sanhedrin was persecuting them daily, yet they continued in unity. They maintained this unity because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the word, and and the readiness to share all they had with each other making this a very, very unique group of people. The the phrase used here, in one heart and one soul, is a typical Hebrew phrase. It occurs in one form or another, numbers of times in Deuteronomy, and is even part of the, the summary of the Decalogue. Christ summed up the Ten Commandments in Mark 12, verses 30 through 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What we see happening in Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the second part of his summation of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is at the heart of what God is teaching them in this message from Acts. This is why they saw everything being held in common. What one owned, the other had claim upon, because you are to love your neighbor as yourself. If he has a need, then you have an obligation to help meet that need. This illustrates for us the unique spirit of Christianity. The law said in Deuteronomy 15.4, there should be no poor in Israel, so we should understand in the body of Christ, we should do everything possible to help overcome poverty among God's people. But we must keep this in the proper balance. You are not to help the lazy man remain in his laziness. You must not help him remain in his sin. That would not be showing him love. The Apostle Paul gave this admonition in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. But it is an absolute must. We as believers, we reach out and help those who have legitimate needs. It is also important that you see that this is a voluntary sharing of possessions, not an obligation of ownership. You own the property, even as a Christian, it's yours. You can do with it what you want. Acts 4, verse 34 says, Nor were there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. They did this voluntarily. As a Christian, you do not renounce the rights of ownership by establishing everything as being held in common. This is not the same thing as socialism. It is based in the principle of voluntary sharing. This has as its purpose the strengthening of the unity and harmony of the church. What do you see as a result of their generosity? Acts 4.33 And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The apostles had power because the Holy Spirit was on them because of the generosity of the people. And in their, 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 it, it had power in their witness of Lord's, the Lord's resurrection. It made them stronger. The people around them watching saw the grace of God at work in their lives. Generosity is another of those foundational characteristics of the Christian life. What do the people so moved in their generosity do with their gifts? Acts 4.35 they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Let us look again, as we did last week, to the book of Proverbs and learn more of this wonderful aspect of the Christian life. First, we shall see that we are called to be generous. Second, we will learn God rewards the generous person. Third, we shall find that selfishness is very, very destructive. Generosity is a direct outgrowth of the changed heart. Our old heart of stone is concerned only with self. When God reaches down and changes the old heart from stone to flesh, the center of attention changes. Instead of being concerned only with self, there is now a new center of attention, Jesus Christ. There is a change from the old absolutism of self to the new absolutism of God's word. The heart goes from being directed inwardly to being directed outwardly. Proverbs 3, verses 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. 
Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Believe the hardest thing for any of us to deal with in our own heart life, on our own lives, is selfishness. That's our struggle. You are warned in this verse not to withhold good to those who deserve it. When it is in your power to give to someone who is deserving and you fail to do so, you have sinned. Again, we want to make sure we properly balance this. We must always make sure you have understood the teaching of God's word in its proper context. This verse says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it. The word, those who deserve it, are important. You are not commanded to be an easy mark for some con man. You are called to be a good steward of the blessings God has given you. You do this by being willing to give to those who have true needs. You must keep in mind, brotherly kindness has limits. It is generally in Scripture restricted to fellow believers, but not always. This rule probes only at the surface of the real issue. You may see someone with a need and think, I have no legal obligation to help them. For the Christian, is not a, it is not a matter of legal duty, but of gospel love. Every Christian has a claim upon your love. You have no right to limit your love more than Scripture does. Every opportunity to do good is your call to do so. But you must remember, Scripture does limit this by saying, the man that is lazy will not work, and will not work is not to eat. Right after I came to Cashers, and that was about 30 years ago, I had a call from a man who said he was traveling through the area and needed a place to sleep and something to eat. I called a couple of the other pastors, and we agreed to split up the needs. I agreed to buy him a meal. I met him and paid for his meal and sat with him for a while. I got him to talking about himself. Now, his arrogance was eye-opening. He bragged to me, the one who had just given him a free meal, that his life was traveling from town to town looking for handouts. I wanted my money back. But God wouldn't let me ask him. But I did learn a very valuable lesson. This man was a liar. He was a cheat. There was no kindness in what I did for him. True love would have told him, no, I will not give you any money, but some godly advice, repent and get a job. It is those who are around you daily who are the real owners of your good. Jesus has transferred to them his rights over you by calling them his brethren. Therefore, kindness is not a matter of option, but of obligation to the fellow believer. Faithful service to others must be one of your greatest objectives. Proverbs 14.31 He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he but who honors him has mercy on the needy. As a believer in God, you are called upon to honor him in everything you do. Your generosity must bring honor to God. That means your acts of generosity must be genuine exercises of aid to those who are truly needy. This makes it clear a truly generous act is not just giving to someone simply because they asked you. 
In order to bring that glory to God, you must investigate the need and give the proper type of help. That might be training on how to handle money instead of giving them a fistful of dollars. You must balance brotherly kindness and love to be able to exercise proper generosity. When you reach out and truly help someone, your actions always bring glory and honor to God. I once had a member of this church come to me asking me to give them some money, several thousand dollars. I learned from my first encounter, and I began to ask questions. It finally came out. They had taken some money from a family member. To put it correctly, they had stolen the money. They wanted the church to give them the money so they could put it back because they knew they were close to being discovered. I said no and told them to go and confess their sin. That was the kind thing to do. They refused to take my advice and it wound up being a discipline issue before the session. They got really mad at me and they said I, I would not give it. If I wouldn't give them the, the money, I, I could not possibly be a Christian. Had I helped them to cover up their sin, there would have been no honor for God. In calling them to confess and repent, God was honored, even though they didn't follow the advice. The first duty of the believer is always to honor God, and that is true even in acts of generosity. Proverbs 21, 25, and 26. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. You must be careful with these verses. The man who refuses to work will bring death on himself. If he refuses to work and earn a living, he will starve to death. He has passed that sentence upon himself, and nowhere in Scripture would you find a command that requires you to pardon him with your gifts. It says he covets greedily all day long. Here is a man that has only desire. That's all he knows is desire. Never a sense of responsibility. If you give him in, in an effort to help him, he'll only return wanting more and more of your hard-earned money. The last of this verse adds, but the righteous gives and does not spare. Is this saying the righteous are to give to the sluggard without sparing? Absolutely not. It is making a contrast between the sluggard and the righteous. Yes, the righteous give to those who are truly needy. They do so from the gifts of God to them. The sluggard is self-centered, caring nothing for others. The righteous are others-centered. They care about those with true needs and offer help unsparingly. Understand, the righteous does love the sluggard. They love him because God calls them to love all men. So, in true love, they call him to repent of his laziness and go out and get to work. This is what true godly generosity is supposed to be, do, and it is to be a characteristic of all believers. God never calls his people to do something without giving them a satisfying reward for their obedience. It is God that calls you to be generous and there are rewards in place for your obedience. The important thing to remember about God's promises of rewards 
is that they are rarely instantaneous. We live in an instant society, instant coffee, instant grits, all those kind of things. We think we've got to have it now. Many of God's rewards must be waited for, some even requiring a lifetime of waiting. The first reward Scripture mentions in regard to generosity is one that requires a long wait. Proverbs 22.9 He who has a generous eye will be blessed for he gives of bread to the poor. Generosity is a manufacturer of satisfaction and happiness. It reaches out in love to someone truly in need. The important thing to remember is that God's standard for the believer is sacrifice, not convenience. You're not called to give out of your abundance to one another for that gains nothing. What costs you nothing brings no return. You are to give out of your heart from your sustenance. Also, you gain no rewards when you give because someone has made you feel bad. You cannot be shamed to give so you can gain a reward. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. God's charge is that you be ready, that you be willing to meet the needs of those he sends across your path with real needs. Is this not his example to us in Jesus Christ? Christ gives forgiveness and eternal life through the sharing of his perfect life and atoning death. It is possible for you after receiving his most precious gift, is it possible for you after receiving his most precious gift to refuse to give of the material things of this life to one with a true need? You are, as a believer, nothing more than a steward of his bounty. You are a caretaker of the wonderful grace and mercy he has placed in this world. You manage the property he has loaned you. Therefore, you need to be alert to those he may send across your path so you can meet their needs in his name. For you to have the bounty of God is a great blessing. With that blessing comes responsibility. To be blessed with great riches means you are also blessed with great opportunity. The test that shows your commitment to Christ is the test of generosity. The rewards that come immediately are more of his blessings and the deep satisfaction of being in the will of God. The second reward mentioned in Scripture in regard to generosity is not so quick in coming. It is just as secure and has God's guarantee behind it as much as happiness and satisfaction. The second is prosperity and success. Proverbs 19.70 He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 11 verses 24 through 25 also says the generous man will be blessed with prosperity. It is important that you see this in its proper context. In the Old Testament, the promise of obedience is always prosperity. In the New Testament, the promise of obedience is always persecution. How do we reconcile these two different concepts? Under the Old Testament, everything was a shadow of what was to come. The land of Israel was to the Jewish people a shadow of what was to come, the promised eternal rest. 
The ceremonies of the tabernacle were shadows of the coming work of Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary's cross. The promise of prosperity was a shadow, a shadow of the coming glory of eternity with God. Jesus fulfilled all the old shadows and brought to light the truth of heaven and of this old sinful world in which you live. In the New Testament, Christ makes it clear to his disciples in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If you follow Jesus and are obedient to his words, you will be persecuted. Prosperity is not the promise to the New Testament believer. Things you owe will be stolen, own will be stolen, and you will be despised and killed because of your faith. So what about the blessings of prosperity? The blessing of earthly prosperity are fulfilled in eternity with Christ. Your reward for generosity will have to wait until you arrive in heaven. Then you will walk the streets of gold and live in a mansion that defies the imagination of man. The idea that Christians are to be the rich and powerful of this world does not come from the scripture we read. Instead, we are told we will suffer with Christ. We are told we will be hated and despised. It will be brought through our conduct under such hard times that others will recognize the depth of our commitment to Jesus Christ. If we will but by our testimony in difficult situations, if we will by our testimony in difficult situations, that many will be drawn to us. They're coming because they see how you handle life and they want to handle it in the same way. I ask you to name me one time in the history of this world where Christianity grew strong and prospered because of good times. There's not one. There's not a single one. Christianity has always come forth to claim nations from times of poverty and persecution. It is always the prosperity of a nation that causes it to fall from the faith. All you have to do is honestly look at America to see the truth of that statement. The idea that one can be a better Christian when they have wealth is a false idea. Christ told his disciples in Luke 18, 24 through 25, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Christ said this to the rich young ruler. He went on to tell the disciples it was not impossible, but very difficult for the rich to lay their riches down and follow him. Surely there are examples of this happening. Yes, there are. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, after speaking to Christ, gave half of all he had to the poor, told the Lord he was going to repay fourfold anyone he had stole from. Zacchaeus saw that money was not important in relationship to eternity. The gospel never promises that if you come to Christ, you will receive the world. Instead, it says, leave the world and come to Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Why would God, knowing this about money, call you to himself and leave you in the midst of such an evil tempter? He does it for his own purposes. He does it to help you grow in his grace. Money produces selfishness in the hearts of men. Selfishness produces an empty and troubled life. With the Holy Spirit in your heart, you can begin to see the destruction, the love of anything but God can produce. Proverbs 28, 27. 
He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. What we find here is one of the truly deceptive ideas of this world. Having great wealth will prevent want and bring happiness. But we also hear that those who have more curses desire even more. Isn't that amazing? Rich, the rich, evil rich man always wants more. Riches do not produce happiness. If not approached in a correct way, they will simply bring an emptiness and greater trouble into the life. Having said that, it must be understood God does bless some of his people with wealth. When they come to understand the responsibility and handle it correctly, they can truly have happiness in their life. What you must recognize is that it is not the wealth that produces the happiness, but the wonderful grace of God. The Christian's happiness is not only found in Jesus Christ and his relationship with him. That is never dependent on the believer's financial condition. You do not need Christ in the world in order to be happy. All you need is Jesus Christ. When you have hope in Jesus Christ, you have all the happiness eternity can offer. Your hope finds its strength in the hope you have of the resurrection of Jesus and his return to take you to be with him. Another very menacing trap of wealth caused by the selfishness in manufacturers is that it brings a similar response from others. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. The man who has the resources to help the needy and refuses to hear their desperate cry will come to find that no one will hear him when he has a need. Who would believe the man with billions would ever have a need? But all men have needs. Everyone needs love and friendship. Just as the rich man says, let the poor make their own way, so others will say of him, let him buy what he needs. Jesus Christ was sent into this world to live the perfect life, die the atoning death, and win the resurrection victory, so that the sins of his people would be forgiven and they would have eternal life. Can you think of anything that any man needs more than this gift of life from Jesus Christ? What riches cause is a cloudiness around the true needs of life. They cause those who are blessed with the accumulation of wealth to begin to see themselves as a source of their riches. They begin to believe they're self-sufficient, that they really don't need anyone. They look at others and wonder why they can't do the same thing for themselves. They will not give to God any credit in their own lives. This is the heart of what atheism wants everyone to believe. It is man and man alone who can solve the problems of humanity. What a tragedy. What a great tragedy. The scripture points men to the need of a savior. You see it in first in Genesis 3.15 when God called Adam and Eve a savior would be sent. The whole of the Old Testament is pointing men to that need. Pointing men to Jesus Christ. In the New Testament that savior is presented. His name is Jesus Christ. He came into this world to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He gave with great generosity. 
The call to everyone who hears and believes in this Savior is to go into the world and show the same type of generosity to everyone who comes across your path. Dear ones, selfishness is the curse of a godless person. Selfishness causes a hardness of the heart that nothing in this world can prevent. Generosity is the replacement of the new heart for selfishness. We have an example of complete unselfishness, Jesus Christ. He came and gave his all for those who would hear and believe. Have you heard his call? Have you received a new heart with which you can see your need of his saving grace? Are you ready, ready and willing to give of yourself as he did, that others might have the joy and blessing of eternal life with him? You can have this wonderful gift of a generous spirit if you will listen and believe in him. There's nothing that can compete with generosity. We need to be generous with everything in our lives. We saw last week how important love and kindness are to the Christian and his life. You cannot display the love and kindness of God without generosity. If you hold back from a fellow man in real trouble, the very sustenance of life, you do so because you think you have to build some kind of great hoard to keep you safe, then you sin. You're saying, I don't trust God, I trust in the works of my own hands. That leads into a very dark place. A place that eludes you from the light of life. Please, please don't forget to show love and kindness. Show it to, by having a generous spirit. It is only in Jesus Christ that you can receive such a spirit. Open yourself to Christ's guidance. Let your generosity be seen by all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer, we come before your throne seeking to grow in our faith and hope and become stronger in our kindness to others. Please take the truth from your word. Let it guide us as we live out our lives as witnesses for you. We looked into your word this morning. We have heard of the generosity you call us to live in. We ask your guidance as we seek to love one another. Help us take your commands and apply them in our lives. Give us the strength and courage we need to stand firm in our kindness to others. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you would take your scripture.